Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today rejoined by two very special guests, Taylor Pearson and Gabe Basson, back for round two. Taylor, Gabe, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having us. Yes, sir. Thank you. So we're here to try to make sense of, of everything that's, that's happening. Why don't we start with uh, the Fed versus the Treasury? Who's doing what exactly and how exactly is money coming into the economy? Obviously, there's a lot of moving parts to this one. And yeah, there's so many different, uh, so many different programs that keep changing things and, and adding and subtracting. And, you know, as a small anecdote, just someone trying to, you know, apply for the, the PPP, which, which isn't even a, it isn't even a Fed program, but it's a, it's a federal program, but it's, it's just, it's just changing constantly. You know, the rules are changing. What's, what can be included, what can't be, you know, the same with, with all these programs they're doing. And so, you know, it's in terms of in terms of what the Fed's doing. I mean, they're doing a lot. I think <laughs> as a broad stroke. I mean, there's a, there's an alphabet. I mean, Taylor and I have talked about it before. There's like an alphabet soup of different facilities. They call them uh, programs, etc. You know, at a, at a big at a high level. You know, they're they're basically trying to you know uh, backstop liquidity. So they're trying to backstop liquidity through these programs. Uh, whether it's the commercial paper uh, funding program, the CPFF, or the municipal lending program, which is backstopping municipal bonds, or um, the Main Street lending program facility that's going to backstop uh, small business loans, or the the secondary and the primary mar- uh, corporate credit facilities, which are those are the ones you're hearing about. People are kind of cynical about because they're they're buying corporate bonds, junk bonds as well. And there's money market lending facilities that, that, that is going to backstop money markets. And so, you know, the Fed is, you know, it seems like primarily trying to just make sure the system stays lubricated, for, for lack of a, a better word. And the thought being that if they're signaling that, that they're there to lubricate the system and that they are actually in the markets, you know, doing certain things, uh, backstopping loans, providing loans, buying ETFs, et cetera. That that will cause you know the rest of market participants to kind of you know take a deep breath, you know look at the system, think the system's okay, and, and maybe be willing to either you know buy things themselves, purchase uh, you know take loans themselves, so on and so forth. So there's there's an, there's an explicit kind of thing going on with them actually providing money and providing uh, loans and being buyers in the market, as well as an implicit thing that it's like oh the Fed the Fed's there. Um, and, and there's this kind of implicit guarantee. And so I think that that prevent, you know, their goal for, from all those programs is to, you know, prevent the worst case scenario from occurring, which is complete seizing of the system. No one can get loans, margin calls, uh, people fat forced to sell assets at bargain based in prices, which causes even more, you know, selling pressure in markets, which causes even more margin calls, which causes, you know, that, that kind of vicious cycle that can occur in asset markets when there's leverage. 
And, and I think that's, that's primarily what they're, what they're trying to do. Sorry for the long winded answer there, but that's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on and I, and I barely touched the surface there. Well, I know I get, it's like the way, I guess the way, uh, cause we talked about this a little bit, Gabe, the way based on your script on Turkey wise, like, it's like there's these rolling liquidity crises as, as sort of there's some, I don't know if, if unwinding is the, the right term, but as these liquidity crises from hit different industries, they're basically just like rolling out new programs into those industries. Just, yeah, as you said, like try and keep things, keep things liberated. And I don't, do you, I, cause I don't understand, I know we've talked a little bit, like what is the distinction between what the Fed is doing and what the Treasury is doing? Like so the, the, what, what, what ends up happening, you know, again, my understanding is that the Fed w- is setting up, uh, there's these SPVs, these special p- uh, purpose vehicles that are being set up that are basically that the Treasury de- puts money in as equity to the SPV and then the Fed levers it up, you know, X amount of times, five, seven, ten times, depending on, on the asset. Um, and so then, there, then that special purpose vehicle you know, is the, is then the facility that is, is then the, the vehicle that is buying the assets or, or giving the loans, et cetera. You know, I, can, I think it's kind of akin. Again, I don't want to get too in the weeds, and I'm and I'm certainly not an expert uh, with with all this, but um, you know, like similar to kind of like the Maiden Lane SPVs that were set up for you know that were backstopping the Bear Stearns asset backed securities back in the day. That you know, there's 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 all these different you know kind of vehicles that I think, I think help, I, there's probably some, you know, legal reason for structuring it in that way. But the point is, is that the treasury puts in the 10%, you know, the first you know, 10% of the equity, and then it gets levered up, you know, puts in all the equity, but then it gets levered up X amount of times. And, and then they go and, and do what they do. Yeah. I guess one of the things I was wondering, like, so the question is like, if, is the fed constrained in terms of like how much leverage they can add to those SPVs? Like, could there be, could you get like a, uh, run on the banks, you know, or like whatever, whatever's in those SPVs, even at 10x leveraged, isn't enough to like provide liquidity systems. At that point, does Congress have to like re-inject, like, does they have to pass a bill to put more, more money into those SPVs or how does that work? It's a good question. I don't know if I even know, know the answer uh, perfectly and they could, they could rule change. But my, my understanding is that you know, kind of, again, goes back to the implicit versus explicit. I think implicit in, in this is that the assets in those SPVs can only degrade so much because they are in there in the market buying and because they are implicitly guaranteeing so many, you know, so many things in the system, especially these assets that they're also explicitly buying where they're literally going and buying those assets, you know, to, to have a run on those assets, you need the rest of the market participants to kind of panic to to be selling assets, you know, down, and and, that, and that's not impossible uh, to, to happen. Where you know the Fed owns, you know, a bunch of a bunch of loans, you know, that that they're buying just kind of I don't I don't want to say just just randomly, but they're buying a bunch of loans, and then all and the rest of the market says these loans aren't, you know, these are no good, you know, these things could go to zero, and and then they sell them down, and then that causes what you're talking about. Taylor, like the equity, the equity in the SPV to degrade to a point of, you know, insolvency. And then can, can what happens then? Does the treasury just re-up? And my guess is yes. Um, and and I, I, I think so. I think, again, they're trying to make it so hard uh, with these explicit and implicit guarantees that, you know, all right, you're going to go, you know, the rest of the market's going to panic. We're not going to let the market panic because we're going to provide all these guarantees. And we're also going to be there with a bid at 90 you know, even though even though the, the the market wants to sell it down to eighty, 
you know, we're going to be there at 90 to bid it. And then that signals and also provides capital. But again, you're right. Like at some point, you know, if these loans are so bad and, and they're worth 10 cents on the dollar, well, uh, you know, and that, and then if that happens and mass, well, then, then it's a problem. And yeah, they're going to need to reload. And that is definitely something I think uh, is going to have to happen because of, you know, things we might have talked about before, like, you know, some of what we're seeing in some of these, in some of these markets still, and we mentioned uh, commercial paper is one of them. They're, they're still kind of functioning as if the Fed has not guaranteed this stuff, um, has not guaranteed uh, the solvency of, 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 of a lot of these products and isn't there backstopping it. And so even with these explicit and implicit backstops, the, the, some of these markets are somewhat dysfunctional um, and commercial paper being one of them. Um, which is which is a very important market because that's where that's where companies fund a lot of their short term short term liquidity needs you know thirty to thirty to ninety day type type stuff a lot of working capital um, you know these are unsecured kind of short term loans you know is a, is a good way to, is a good way to think about it and the point is, is that there's a program a facility that we talked about before the CPFF commercial paper what is it funding facility I don't know something like that and you know they're there. To, to backstop that that and even with that that guarantee by the Fed, the, you know, c- companies are having a hard time issuing commercial paper right now. It, it, it spreads are wider, uh, pr- pr- uh, interest costs are higher than they should be given the the Fed's there. And so, to me, that it isn't that re- it's not that relevant that oh uh, Johnson and Johnson's com- you know can't access the commercial paper market or has to pay three percent. Uh, for six for 90 day paper or whatever the number is, that's not an actual number, but it's more just that overall there's stress in the system if the commercial paper market, you know, is, is trading at such high spreads. And so it, it's more emblematic that there's going to be, there's, there's going to be more help needed. There's going to be more of the bazooka is big in the fed, but I think it's going to need to be bigger. Um, you know, now these things can tame and these things can settle down and maybe we'll see that. I mean, the CPFF, uh, the commercial paper facility just launched this week. And so probably maybe we'll see some improvement and see what happens uh, as they're out there kind of actually buying or willing to, to, to buy commercial paper versus just saying they're willing to buy. And, and so we'll see what happens. But the point is, is that there's, uh, there's, there's, it's not all, even though the Fed is throwing gajillions of dollars at this problem, at this liquidity problem, they're doing their best to stay ahead of it. But to your point, Taylor, you know, all of a sudden XYZ industry starts to get weird. Well, are they going to start backing energy companies? Are they going to start backing, you know, specific industries, specific facilities for specific things? And, you know, at what point do they say, well, what are we going to, we can't do everything, um, but they're trying. They, you mentioned the bazooka thing, like that Hank Paulson line from, I think it was pretty sang in front of Congress before TARP in 2008 or whenever it was. Like that, that, yeah, that, like there's that game, I guess you call it the game theory dynamic, right? It's like not just what are you doing, but like what does the market credibly believe you can do and like if you can convince exactly everything then like that you, you actually have to if you can convince them you can do more you actually have to do less right because that it's a whatever it's credible if you have a bazooka in your pocket but i guess going back to the commercial paper i wanted to, like what um so when you say like the spreads in commercial paper money normally the commercial paper trades uh, at a slightly higher interest rate than than the risk free rate of like uh, U.S. bonds, and that, normally that's what like thirty basis points or something, and now it's like two hundred basis points. Like, what, like how how yeah, out I mean, of whack is that? I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. I don't have a Bloomberg, but it's 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 
Yeah, it's trading much wider than it does. I don't have the exact. First of all, you can look at each individual company and see where those trade, you know, where Johnson and Johnson's and where General Mills and where you know, Exxon, et cetera, you know, their commercial paper trades. Uh, and and you, can, you can look at that on an individual basis. You can also look at an index on Bloomberg, but it, it's, it's trading, you know, probably 50 to 150 basis points wider than, than, than the risk free rate or whatever it is. And, you know, in theory, again, in theory, it should be trading about around the risk free rate because, again, the Fed is guaranteeing it. So, you know, you basically have the Fed's credit or the, the treasuries as your, as your counterparty in the worst case scenario. If for some reason Johnson Johnson defaults on their corporate, on their, on their commercial paper, well, then you get your, ba- you get your backstop by the, by the Fed, the treasury, et cetera. So why, why are spreads not kind of converging to, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily be, not going to necessarily be the risk-free rate, but closer it does, than, it than does where seem it is weird. yeah yeah like it does like I don't exactly. know, you're like loaning johnson and johnson money for 90 days and and not like which like it seems like johnson johnson's probably pretty credit worthy on a 90 day time frame and the fed says even if they're not we'll make up your money and like still spreads are much wider there than they are historically like yeah i guess that that's that is like an interesting thing. and you said you don't like that's it's right. also there's there's people that are flooding into that market as well. Like there's there are some people that are kind of saying, oh, okay, like I I trust the Fed. Like there's kind of a when we talk about like there's a schizophrenic character in a way almost, right? Like there's there's two parties, one of which is sort of like back in full risk on mode, and one of which is like I don't I don't kind of trust this. I forgot what I was going to say, but yes, I, I I agree with everything. I agree with everything you said there. Um, it's 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 a bit it's a bit wonky. It could be just you know some kind of I don't want to say technical, but kind of a technical situation where the, the, the typical buyer of first of all, yeah, first of all, commercial paper is is unsecured. So even though it's like thirty or ninety days, like you said, it's unsecured versus a bond, which oh, is, okay. is secured. So there's there's that there's that that's a nuance. But again, you're, you're talking such short term uh, paper, you know, in relatively high quality companies or the highest of quality companies in in, in a lot of, in these cases that we're talking about. So it doesn't need to be secured. And so you're actually seeing capital structures shift right now as, as people are, fl- are, are not willing to finance commercial paper. They're not willing to invest in the commercial paper market, but they're willing to invest in bonds. As you saw a few weeks ago, um, and, and even recently, you know, the corporate, corporate credit money inflows is, is, is off the charts near, near some of the highest weekly inflows uh, uh, in terms of bonds, but also uh, in terms of new issuance, in terms of, you know, companies getting, uh, you know, loans, bonds, et cetera. So there's people, there's, there's, there's investors, people, investors willing to buy bonds in size, but they're not willing to play in this market. And again, it, it, it could be a function of, of a lot of things. Uh, but it's, it's, again, it's wonky, which again, leads me to believe that, you know, either maybe my time preference is too high and I want things to, you know, I want to be able to like know the answer now and, you know, and, and over time things will settle down and the commercial paper market will come back and slowly, slowly, but surely, you know, this, through the signaling effect, through the actual effect of them being in the market, it'll, everything will be smooth. But as of now, um, I'm just, you know, the, you know, a little bit, it's a little bit concerning, you know, even amidst the NASDAQ now up on the year, whatever, you know, it is, the S&P is on 30% and, you know, here we are. Again, it's not to say that the market's going to collapse tomorrow either because of this. It's just that, you know, it, it makes me scratch my head. It makes me think twice before, you know, getting too excited, even amidst the equity market price action at this 
Yeah, I guess, I guess it was, I, I, I've talked to a fair number of volatility traders uh, over the past few weeks. And like one of the things I've heard from like a lot of them is that their sense was like a lot of the declines in like the major indices that we saw in March was was like more of a like institutional uh, degrossing or deleveraging that you had some that I mean, the, the example that I'm familiar with and or somewhat familiar with is um, there was a and you can correct me in this case there's a carry trade between U.S. Treasury bonds and the futures and so you know it was there was like a 30 basis point uh, or something like that arbitrage there and so you had these funds that were levered up 30 or 50x or something. Um, that were that were doing that arbitrage to make you know at thirty basis points you're not making any money but at fifty x leverage on thirty basis points like now you're making real money and then what happened when the Fed uh, started to cut rates was like all that got wonky uh, and you have all these like highly leveraged players who had to like to degross their books and then as you mentioned like you have these kind of like liquidity cascades right like someone becomes a force someone gets margin called and becomes a force seller and that pushes the price down and then like you know the incrementally next weakest hand. Uh, gets margin call and they they sell and like you keep pushing that down. But I guess that like that was interesting to me in terms of like the p- commercial paper market just because like that like that that narrative is basically like the fact that we had the largest supply the largest global supply and largest global demand shock. I don't know, maybe ever. Uh, I think probably ever. Yeah, like that that hasn't been as much of a factor just as like the the leverage and stuff. And so like that I don't know. The, I, I'm trying to square how that. Yeah, I mean, that that is a good point. And it's it's I think you're right. That was a huge, a huge uh, accelerant or, uh, you know, huge reason for kind of what 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 went down there. And, you know, the, the, the demand shock, if you mean like aggregate demand, like, is that what you mean? Like in the economy? Yeah, like people aren't spending money. Yeah, right. And exactly. And that and that we still the jury's out, right? Like we don't know where we're at on that. I mean, if you look at the market, the market, you know, is forward looking and look, the market's, uh, you know, you know, where above where it was a year ago, um, you know, the NASDAQ is I don't even know where it is on the year, but it's like back to almost I think it might be up or something. I don't, I don't know. But like, you know, it's, it's it's if you looked at these kind of forward looking indicators, the, the market stock market for you know, you'd, you'd think, yeah, this is a you know, market basically saying this is a temporary demand shock. This isn't going to last uh, that long and that we're going to kind of, you know, add back, uh, you know, you know, and, and kind of uh, or, or take it out, you know, because we know that, that this was just this was just a one off or something like that. And that's, you know, certainly arguable at best. I mean, you know, Again, if you think about the ripple effects and you think about what Main Street's going through and you see the bread lines and you see, not to get too dramatic, but just, you know, you see just the psyche and the paradigm shifts that, that are occurring right now and how people are living and how people are, are working and living their lives and, and spending money, et cetera. Like, I, I don't think that's a one, a, a one, two, six fix where we're just, you know, oh, here we are one quarter and done. And, you know, we're just back off to the races again. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, and then, and then given all the stimulus that we're getting, um, even though, again, I'm on one hand saying it's not enough, but we're getting a lot of stimulus. Uh, nonetheless, you know, you, you could say with all that stimulus, with all that backdrop, you know, if it's just a one-off, well then, yeah, great. But it's just, it's just hard to see, especially uh, given what we don't know about the kind of future path of, lots of things, the virus, we don't need to talk about all that because that's been talked about a lot, but just, you know, 
what are the what are the effects on that? What are the, what's the supply side effect on that? You know, how does that affect supply chains? How does that for the, uh, affect production? So on and so forth. And and so yeah, I, I think it's it's hard to it, uh, we can opine on it, but it's just it's just really hard to know. You know, is this is this one time in nature or not? Um, and it depends. You know, we can look at different markets to kind of indicate what we think. And you look at the stock market. The stock market is saying, oh, this is not. Uh, this is a relatively one offish event. Uh, at this point in time, again, on what is it, April 17th, 2020, you know, the market just bounced, I don't even know the numbers, 25, 30% off the, the lows from uh, late March. Um, you know, as of now, the market's, you know, saying this is one off, uh, this, is, this is short term in nature. But if you look at some of these other markets, the bond markets, you know, the treasury yield curve, the euro dollar curve, you, 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 you see, uh, you know, low, low interest rates, you see, you know, inverted, inverted curves. That are that are basically saying things are going to be we're going to have a very slow slow growth potentially volatile and slow growth uh, economy going forward. So, depends like, like on if you what had you to guess, like your, why is that? Like I bet I think that's a good like there just does seem like a there's like a weird disconnect where like some of these things look like very bullish and some look very bad. It's, it's it's like it's just it seems like there's like a huge there's a huge spread in just like the general sense of the word of like the. Yeah, and I, and I guess that makes sense, right? Like the 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 possible variance of outcomes here is like extremely large, right? Like it could be extremely bullish. We had a short-term demand shock. All that demand didn't get destroyed. It got deferred. You know, the, the person that didn't take a vacation in April is going to take that vacation in June. So like that's going to show back up in GDP and the you know the Fed and Treasury injects a ton of money in the capital. So like you know, great. That's like super bullish. And you know, the flip side like is how long does the virus take? Like what if things stay shut down for a year and, and blah blah blah. I, like I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't have a good answer. But like, what? I mean, how do you square those? Like, how do you think about? It, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. I agree with you, man. You can, you know, under the under, you know, you're the you're the the vol guy, right? And you know, you're, you're, you get a fund that's going to be, you know, investing in in, the, in that product. And I feel like there is there is a lot of a lot of scenarios that, that you can see, and, and 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 lots of money is being bet on both sides of the scenario, like. Like I just said, uh, in the corporate bond side of things, you're seeing the, the, some of the biggest weekly issuances of new corporate bonds in history. Uh, you know, so people taking risk, money coming into the credit market uh, or into the credit into companies via the credit market. You know, via you know loans, bonds, etc. And then at the same time, I mean, I just saw a Bank of America fund manager survey the other day where, where retail cash. Levels are at the highest they've been since I don't, I don't know. I have I have the chart somewhere, but in you know since since the since the last crisis, um, so retail, retail cash is 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 at all time highs, and then you've got the money market accounts, you know, which is institutional cash, institutional investors that are 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 are, are if you look at government um, money market funds, so government backed, so so money market funds that that invest in in government securities, those those funds are are roofing too so yeah you've got two ends of the spectrum of like risk on folks people you know uh risk on investors super risk off investors and and yeah one of them is wrong <laughs> and uh, i don't know you don't know i mean so the, the the bull case is that you know this thing is one off in nature there's a ton of cash on the sidelines both on the retail side and institutionally that money comes flooding in aggressively along with this fed backstop along with you know all these different programs that are that are that are there 
and money printing. Uh, and that could be extremely positive for asset prices um, and potentially inflation, especially if there's a supply side disruption. You know, at the same time, this new credit that came into the markets via, via the bond markets, you know, again, like you were saying before, Taylor, if, if, if credit market starts to turn and say, you know, screw this, we're not buying these bonds or we're going to sell these bonds, we're going to, you know, spread starts to blow out again, you know, that's a problem because there's still a lot, of, because there's now more leverage in the system via, via a lot of, of, of these loans and bonds that, um, that have been purchased and issued. So, you know, you can paint draconian scenarios, you can paint super bullish scenarios too. And, uh, and this isn't to hedge, hedge everything. It's just, it's, it's not, you know, if anyone had a crystal ball, I guess we'd all be gajillionaires. That would be nice. Uh, well, you mentioned like inflation. I'm wondering like, cause you know, we t- the last time we were um, talking with Eric, we were talking about inflation and sort of like post 2008 or, you know, in 2008, there was like, like, I think that was like a big narrative, right? Like the fed is spending all this money. We're going to see inflation. Did, uh, you know, it seems like, I guess the, the theory that makes the most sense to me, which may or may not be true, is that you know that you you explained to me was you know we've, inflation has just been in asset prices, right? Because of the way that money came into the system, um, you know we have seen asset price inflation since 2009 with stocks, bonds, real estate, et cetera. Like what what makes you think like why wh- what makes you think like this would be any different? Like why why would this show up in inflation in the way we typically think about it in terms of like consumer price inflation yeah what do you i don't know you see, the I, honestly honestly yeah i honestly i don't i don't know i i can't point to a ton that would that would make it that different i mean i guess one thing is you know they're doing these, these there's some stimulus checks that are going out to people again they're, they're again they're so small i mean uh you know 1200 bucks or whatever the number is you know they're doing a lot of small business loans which is helping keeping people employed um which you know is is good um, again, I think that that bazooka is going to have to grow too, because I think there's going to have to, uh, you know, give more money to the people, if you will, versus you know the institutions. Um, but 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 that said, yeah, no, as it, as it stands now, I don't I don't see there being a ton of difference. You know, the, the the other big thing I guess you could say is there's potential for supply chain disruption, which could affect the supply side of things. You know, in terms of products, uh, goods, uh, et cetera, production. Um, I mean, you even saw it on a mini example, like go, go try to, I mean, I don't know if now, but you know, a month ago to go try to buy Purell, see what you see. You know, I went to my local uh, bodega down the street um, and they were trying to sell me it for $24. It was like some ridiculous number. And it's like, you know, if that happens across the board, you know, you're seeing what's happening with Smithfield foods right now in South Dakota, they're shutting down plants. Uh, again, I don't know if, what, if what's happening in meat prices at this point, but if you start to see crazy supply disruptions, well, that could cause, uh, you know, consumer prices, you know, for goods to increase. Don't know if that affects wages, though, which is the real thing that matters, where then, you know, that starts to affect Main Street, because the example I just gave, supply disruptions actually hurt Main Street because prices go up for them. You know, if they're offset by wage gains or greater, greater, greater wage gains than the, than the prices that they have to pay for goods, well, then they net benefit because the wages went up more than the prices that they're having to pay for goods. You know, but if you see, if you see just, just the prices of goods go up and wage gains don't, uh, that, that's, that's a problematic. And, you know, so to answer your question, I, you know, as it sits now, as it stands now, I don't see why this would be that much different. I think this is, you know, if anything, this, this program, these programs are extremely uh, supportive of asset prices, potentially supportive of asset inflation. 
don't think you know there's enough kind of going to the to the to Main Street that 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 that's going to really you know help wage growth really really kind of exceed inflation uh, any material basis. Again, I'm not an econometric guy, but like it just seems. It just seems like, you know, there's just not much you're seeing right now. You're seeing furloughs. You're seeing, yeah, there's some PPP stuff that's coming in that's helping out with that. But like, so people are getting to keep their jobs versus, uh, versus lose them maybe. Um, but like to really see wage growth, which is what, you know, is, is, is important, uh, to help the, the, the kind of average Joe, um, it's hard to see, hard to see that happening, uh, without uh without asset prices increasing as well yeah, i think things have gotten like hairy there i don't or what yeah I, that's i guess that's the question like what do you have a sense for like what's going on there like what at what point does like that start to crack and what does that look like um i don't have you know the exact numbers and you know there's always delays on when you get all those but i do i did read an article like i don't know when it was a few weeks last week or something like that uh that calpers lost something like 69 billion bucks in march you know, CalPERS, the California pension plan that basically, you know, a massive drawdown. I think it was, I don't know what, 15% or something. I don't know. I think we were assets were like 400 something billion and they lost 70, you know, 69 billion or whatever the numbers are. They lost a lot. Right. And so, you know, that ain't helping them get more funded. Um, and, you know, CalPERS is, is, is a decently funded relative to, to other states. Um, you know, I think they were like 70% funded, 70, 75% funded before that. I don't have the exact numbers, but yeah, overall states are take, states are going to likely have taken a hit again. Now with the market bouncing and with assets maybe bouncing again, I don't, you know, who knows how much of that 69 billion they've made back on paper. And, you know, it's all you know, weird accounting anyways, fuzzy math, but, but yeah, I mean, this is not good for the pension system uh, overall. Uh, it, it, it will likely cause more underfunding, is my guess. Uh, you know, at this at this point, if we stop right here, you know, it would it would it would cause more underfunding. I think will cause more stress. Will potentially cause some of these states to uh, you know look for federal assistance at some point. You know, to help with these pension funds. Again, uh, I'm not. I'm not trying to, you know, use my foghorn and, 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 you know, go nuts here, but it's just, yeah. I mean, you look at some of these states, I mean, I have a map Taylor and, and, and Eric, I'll send it to you, but it's just some of these states. I mean, you know, Illinois, where are they? Yeah. Illinois, 38% funded. I mean, Kentucky, 34% funded, Colorado, 47% funded. This is, you know, again, this is from 2018 actually. So it's, it's a little, it's outdated, but the point is, is like, you know, we're talking some of these states, you know, 30, 40%, funded before this so you know it's it's at, at some point something has to give uh whether they start cutting pension pension payouts to people whether they uh start increasing taxes on on uh on you know in these states um in order to you know increase distribution increase uh money going into these pensions yeah it's a problem and, and we have any that that hasn't even arisen yet i mean again the the, the fed is is, is backing the muni market, which is, which is related to this, but you know, that's for, you know, things like the MTA and bonds that, you know, bonds that help with infrastructure and, you know, tolls and these things. So, but, so it's not crazy that the fed could ever have to come in and maybe help a state, a statewide system like the pen, like some of these pension funds, but 
I mean, they have that hasn't happened yet, and they haven't seemed to. Uh, they haven't. It doesn't seem to be happening at this point. But yeah, these guys are in a world of pain. It. I don't know. It seems like a fool's errand to even try to get out of it. You know, without drastic measures like cutting pension payouts, which again, if you have to pay out less, you can. You know, your your funding. Uh, you know, comes back in line a bit. But you know, again, what are the social consequences to cutting a fireman's pension? You know, guys who have men and women who have worked for 30 years as fire, fire people, and uh, they, they now don't get their pension or they get their pension. They thought they were going to make, you know, X. Now they're going to make 0.6 of X. And, and, you know, they, they just gave their heart and soul for 30 years. And, you know, you know, this is my unionized pension that I deserve and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And you get that across police stations, police, uh, fire, firemen, uh, municipal workers across the board and, and just what are the consequences of that and what are the reactions of those people if that were to start to happen again I don't want to get too crazy but it's just um, that's that's a mess and you know this situation has not helped it it's hurt it and uh, we don't know that we don't know the degree again I using one data point of CalPERS losing 69 billion dollars in one month on paper uh, as, as kind of you know um, you know, again, there's, there's other data out there with other funds showing poor returns too, but it, it, it's definitely not getting better. And, and the only reconciliation I see is either, like I said before, cutting of the, some of these programs, raising taxes uh, on in these states and cities to, you know, bring more money into these pension systems um, or, you know, God forbid, a, a, a Fed bailout, which, you know, may have to happen at some point. Right. And it almost seems like that's the most politically tenable option. Like you can't like cutting the, you know, aside from like the ethics of things, like what's politically feasible, like cutting all the payments to like all the teachers, firefighters, policemen, whatever, like that's a huge voting block. I assume that's very unpopular, like raising taxes also very unpopular. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know the dynamics of like what it takes like to get the, the Fed involved or whatever, but yeah, it doesn't like, yeah. There doesn't seem like any easy solutions, and like considering, considering they were already significantly underfunded last year, you know, which you know should have been kind of the best of times, so to speak, from an asset price perspective. Like, what does that, what does that look like going forward? And but I was thinking this idea of like, you know, volatility cannot be destroyed, only transmuted. Like, you know, we have. Hmm. Um, we, we take volatility and we, we, we take volatility out of certain systems and we, we inject them into, uh, into other systems. And like, maybe, maybe what we're seeing right now is something like where and sort of attempting to destroy, not destroy, but to, to contain or, or reduce volatility and sort of like the economic finance, you know, asset price. So you're like, are, are we just transmuting that volatility into, you know, the social sphere uh, or the political sphere? Or something else like that, and that's it's kind of like a nebulous idea, but it, it, it does seem to, to some extent like that's that's happening. Yeah, no, I think I, I think that makes sense. I think you I think you said something the other day on Twitter about like you know we 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 could see you know, you know the, the social unrest we've seen or whatever in the last twenty years is nothing compared to what we potentially could see, and that it it, it all flows into that to that, and and yeah, I mean you know it's the same thing that could potentially happen with this all this stimulus where again yet again you know if we get asset prices uh kind of skyrocketing and you know asset inflation and then wages continue to stagnate and you know people are getting fired and people are getting furloughed and people are losing their jobs and the economy you know and and these uh you know food banks 
are, are, are being drawn upon, you know, continuously and it, it, it slogs on like that, you know, you're going to get, yeah, exactly. You're going to get some sort of uh, social backlash again. I, again, I hopefully, sorry, go ahead. No, so the dynamics interesting with the whole COVID situation, because I mean, it, it, this particular scenario disproportionately affects like people that need to go to a physical location to work, right? Like if you were, if you're primarily doing like some form of white collar work where, you know, your work is like spreadsheets and word docs and emails and a phone, like, you know, it doesn't matter, like, you know, you, whatever, you're sitting on your couch and your kids are running around and like, that's, you know, there's, it's, it's a bit harder whatever they're going to the office, but like if you work at a factory or restaurant or like whatever, like you, you can't, you literally can't, you know, the government has mandated that you can't go to your job. I mean, that, like that's, that, that, that dichotomy there is just like, I don't know, it's, it's expanding on what you were saying in the sense of like, you know, the people that own the assets are also the ones that are, are least affected, right? Like they're getting the best deal on two levels or, you know, yeah. the other way that yeah. people that yeah. are, are getting shafted on two levels. The Zoom class. Yeah. yeah. The Zoom Something class like gets, gets, you know, the Zoom and Slack class get to, uh, they get to work from home and order their Grubhub and, you know, do these things and, and, you know, good for them. It's good. It's, it's, it's very fortunate uh, to be able to do that. Uh, you know, the plumber doesn't get to do that. You know, the waitress doesn't get to do that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's, it's really tricky. And everyone's, everyone's got different financial situations and everyone's got different setups, but yeah, the guy, the guy sitting at home on zoom and slack and Grubhub in his sweatpants, you know, quote unquote working, you know, getting a salary He's in less of a hurry than the waitress to get back to work, uh, let's say. So, you know, yeah, who knows what that means? And then, and then, then you get even another layer where it's like, you know, with these with these programs like the the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, like that's already been tapped in a week, right? So that thing's tapped now. Again, I think they're going to uh, re-up it. I think they're going to, you know, increase it so they that that's something you know that more people get the loans. But like, what if you didn't apply in the first day that these applications became available, you waited four days to apply. And because you waited four days, you didn't get the loan as a small business. And, you know, but, but the other guy that, that did it, you know, at 12.01 AM on the night of the morning of the, you know, like he got it and you didn't because you waited four days for some, you know, like, you know, it's like, it's, it's like you get like bitterness and resentment. Well, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I was thinking about that yeah. last night. I've talked to a bunch of small business owners in the last, this week, basically. And like, I, I something like, I would guess like, you know, just my personal sample bias, people I know that run small businesses, like maybe 10 to 20% got it. And like, it, it looks completely arbitrary. Like the people that got it, like if you had, it seems like, it, it, I mean, it was like, if you were close to the money in the sense of like, usually like if you were at a small bank or you had some pre-existing relationship with, a banker person that could like push your application to the top of the pile. Like those people got it. Or it was just some arbitrary thing. Like everyone I know that banks at Chase didn't get it. Like every Chase just like didn't, I guess whatever their back office, they like didn't do it. Whereas like if people that went through PayPal, it was like much higher, but it, I guess it's, you know, people are like frustrated because it does feel completely arbitrary. Right? So it's not like the people, the 20% of people that needed it the most got it. It's just like the pretty vision of people that like apply, you know, that knew how to work the system and da da da. And I, I guess that kind of strikes me as like a microcosm of like what a lot of other people are, um, other people are feeling, right? Like it just feels all arbitrary and no sense of like meritocracy or whatever in terms of like how this is getting done. Like it's, you know, did you know the right people? And all yeah, 
I mean, you could say on some level, you know, the people that acted quicker and they're the, you know, they're, they're more aggressive. And so they got it, you know, they got the, they got the loan because they got it in there first. And, and so there's like maybe like some merit in that, but like, yeah, not enough to like, you know, have the program run out, you know, because you, you were four days later than the other guy, um, you know, and then what you're talking about where it's literally, you know, wink, wink, you know, favors for people for, yeah, existing clients. Uh, you know, I heard there's a there's a theory, probably a conspiracy theory, that Chase and some of these bigger banks moved slow on purpose because they wanted the funds to kind of get drained via other banks, so they didn't want to deal with all this administrative stuff. And so, you know, Chase in particular, I've heard that about. Again, who knows? But yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems like the smaller banks uh, worked worked better for this. Let's see, uh, let's go deeper into the euro dollar market. Say more about what what's going on there, and, and maybe you can get into dollar milkshake theory a bit. The euro dollar market is, you know, arguably the biggest, most liquid, heavily traded futures market in in the world. Um, you know, historically, people think about euro dollars as kind of offshore U.S. deposits um, or you know, uh, yeah, U.S. dollar denominated deposits uh, in foreign banks. But you know, it's more than that. It's 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 uh, it's a very you know the most liquid, uh, the most heavily traded futures market out there. Mostly you know money market funds uh, trade these, and and what you know bigger picture what they what they are for the most part. Um, you know the investors, the money market funds are are very close to the economy, uh, and so they're very sensitive. Uh, and so what I guess that you know the takeaway from th- from from this market is. You know, watching what's going on from the players and 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 the, the price action in in this market is at, you know, very important because arguably the players in that market are are, are as close to reality or economic reality um, as possible. And so, you know, there's there's something you can look at kind of a euro dollar curve um, that basically is like a yield curve, right? So you've got the treasury yield curve. Um, and, you know, is just, you know, uh, the X axis is what is time and the Y axis is, is yield. And you've, you've got a similar thing with the Euro dollar market. And it's, you know, right now it's, it's pretty inverted, meaning nearer term, uh, rates are higher than, than kind of out, out months, uh, you know, and then it starts to, to slope back up again. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a smirk of a smile, but it's like, it goes really, it starts high and then it goes down. And then I, I can send you a picture at some point. It starts high and then it goes down for like 12 months, 24 months. And then it starts to like slowly pick back up. But what it's basically saying is that, you know, rates are going lower in the near to intermediate term. Uh, you know, mar- the, the market participants uh, in the most uh, liquid market in the world, the most heavily traded market in the world by the people who are the closest to the economy are basically saying, you know, rates are going to be lower. You know, growth is going to be very slow in the in the short and intermediate term, um, and then our recovery is going to be relatively prolonged as well over the next you know five or ten years. Again, that these are these are this is based on uh, euro dollar future trading that it, you know is happening across all tenors on the curve that is implying the curve, and it's just right now not speaking to. Goldilocks. It's not. It's not. You know, saying you know rates are going to be you know go back up a lot quickly because growth is going to pick back up. Usually, you know, when growth is is really high, rate interest rates are high. I mean, that's generally a correlation. What it's saying is that interest rates are going to be low in the short and intermediate term, and they're going to stay there for a bit, and then they're slowly going to go back up. 
um, again, which to me reads that they're saying things are going to be very slow growth-wise in the short and intermediate term, and then we're going to slowly start to grow, start to come out of that at some point. So that that's another thing that's a little bit, you know, I don't want you know, to use your word, Taylor, I like it wonky. It's just like, you know, you look at certain markets and, you know, uh, valuations are high and, you know, they're implying pretty high growth, et cetera. You know, but you look at the euro dollar market, which is, again, I keep saying it, the very, very, you know, biggest players in the world are saying, no, it's going to be slow. It's, a, it's, it's going to, it's going to be volatile likely as well. And uh, we're not just going to see some V-shaped recovery. Taylor, do you want to get into dollar milkshake theory? Yeah, oh, I, yeah. I, uh, I've heard people talk about this. I was hoping to get uh, Gabe. So, it's my, so my understanding, of, well, but basically the idea behind the dollar milkshake theory, uh, as it sort of relates to the euro dollar market, uh, is that as uh, as you have all these central banks around the world uh, that are adding liquidity to the system and, and and printing that money, a lot of that that liquidity being injected is actually getting sucked up into the dollar, uh, partially because of just huge demand for U.S. dollars. As Gabe said, like whatever insane amount of money uh, is, you know, U.S. dollars on the debt um, that needs to get paid back in, in U.S. dollars. And then, you know, compared, I guess what, the U.S. is now at 0% interest rate, which is uh, relatively high compared to most, like most other places are negative. You know, the ECB is negative. Uh, at this point, and so like the, you know that those that money is going to flow into dollars and strengthen the dollar. And I, yeah, I've heard people talk about this, but I have a, uh, a uh, consultant contractor person I've worked with for a few years, and uh, it's, there's some they're based in Australia, and I pay them every month um, using TransferWise. And like I think in the last like the last six months or something, like in, in in Australian dollars, the amount I'm paying them has gone up like thirty percent or something, just because the the, dollar, the U.S. dollar has gotten so much stronger relative to the Australian dollar. So I, I guess that that note is like very interesting because like we're talking about you know, QE and inflation and U.S. dollar and blah blah blah. And it's like maybe actually the the medium term implication is like all, all the money printing actually makes the U.S. dollar much stronger, right? Like all that that global money printing uh, gets sucked up as as increased demand for dollars. Uh, and the the dollar strength relative to other currencies rises. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting. I've never heard that theory before. I don't know. It's, it sounds like I should have heard of something like that before. But it make it makes sense. And I know everyone you know just an opinion on this. And there's a dollar shortage out there, which I think that flows exactly into what you're talking about a little bit. Foreign demand for U.S. dollars is so high, and that's what's causing the strength. And you know, to me, I just think about the U.S. dollar as kind of the tallest midget. Uh, you know, relative. It's sad. You know, dollar hegemony. Where we're, you know, we're the we're the reserve currency of the world, and that's us. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's that's a that's a, there's a function of that as well. But I guess I, yeah, I, you know, you, you, like you said, you, you get you get the ECB and the Bank of Japan and the Bank of England, and you know, every freaking country printing money, you know, across the board, and not to mention like the Argentinas of the world. Um, yeah, the dollar looks pretty sweet, relative, relatively speaking. You know, again, what could cause a paradigm shift to, for the dollar to use for the dollar to lose its its uh, its dominance? Um, again, we could we could do a three hour podcast on that with you know smarter guests than me. Um, but like, yeah, that that's I think what you're saying you know makes sense, Taylor. Um, although I you know there's so many moving parts to that one. I I, <laughs> I don't know. No, totally. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it, with, I'm, with all this stuff, I think it 
that, I guess that's what I keep thinking going back to like your earlier point of like people rushing into the bond market and now the commercial paper market and all that. Like there's just, it just seems like the, the variance and outcomes, like the, the cone of future possibilities is just like really high, which it like, make, like makes sense. Like that's why, you know, volatility is, is kind of like the market's way of throwing up its hands and saying like, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Like, you know, volatility, you know, when the future seems very certain, volatility is very low and, you know, and you know vice versa yeah and i think i mean you brought up the point um about vol you know kind of going from 80 down to 40 or whatever it was and just you know yeah it, it kind of roofed and you know went to 80 and it's i don't know where it is right now it's in the 30s i think high 30s um but it's uh it's crazy i mean i i, I think um I mean, you asked the question earlier, like, why hasn't the, why hasn't the vol persisted? And, and, and other people have said that to me too. Like, and my argument is it's still in the thirties, it's still in the forties, you know, uh, you know, people were, we were talking about it. I mean, you can, you can, uh, you, you, you can still, there's still, you know, options are still not cheap, um, you know, for the most part. And I think, you know, I think when, when you're comparing it to 80, yes, but you know, when you're comparing it to an average VIX of what, 18 or whatever it is over, over history, um, it's still pretty elevated. Um, and I think that that's, you know, speaks to your point and that's after the market's already gone up, you know, a lot from the lows. So, you know, we're in a situation where VIX vol is still elevated, uh, relatively speaking, you know, to historical long-term historical, you know, it's, it's well off the, the, the near term historical, uh, price, uh, uh, levels, but, you know, the market's gone up a lot and here we still are. And so, the, yeah, like, I think, I think to your point, the, uh, the market saying the, the, under, you know, the, the, the tails are still relatively fat at this point. Yeah. Has this been a win for in the MMT argument uh, or a sort of a, a pro on the MMT side? Let, let's get into sort of the MMT Austrian uh, debate a little bit. Like, and, and have we learned anything about Bitcoin uh, or, or not learned about anything about how, how it operates um, as a re- result of this? You know, it's funny. The MMT thing is, is I, I, I'm not that up to speed. I know there's books written on it and all these things. And I know, I know generally what it is. Um, and again, I think people, can, you know, to Taylor's point earlier, like, look, printing a bunch of money, QE last time didn't cause a ton of inflation. And look, look, look what happens. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's a thesis. And that's, you know, again, I think the sample size is not that great, even though, yes, it's been 10 years of kind of these things. I think when you're talking about, uh, you know, something, you know, inflationary, it's, it's, you know, that's a longer term conversation, but, but yeah, I mean, I think you're going to start to hear that. I mean, you're going to start to hear, I mean, you're some of this stuff that we're talking about echoes, echoes it, you know, you're talking about direct deposits to people's accounts. You're talking about, uh, you know, giving people money back, uh, making people whole, all these things, uh, that, you know, just, just kind of are extremely costly. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean bring in the whole deficit side of things, which again is, I mean, that seems like also like a fool's errand, but I think, yeah, I think MMT is, is going to be a big part of the conversation going forward, um, uh, you know, or some derivative of it um, as, as right now, what we're seeing, it's, it's, it's just, it's just, you can just dismiss it. It's like, you know, the, the thing I keep thinking about is the student loan, uh, situation where I think the number is like 1.4, $1.6 trillion in student loans. I mean, you know, people, you know, you just, you just forgive them. You know, what's another 1.4 trillion on top of the rest of this thing. Let's forgive every student loan. Like, let's just do it. Like, why not? Like, you know, we're just adding on top. Think of, think of the, think of what that would do for people, you know, and, and then think about what it would 
do for others, but like, you know, just, just, just add it on top. Why not? You know, let's just bail out Illinois pension fund. It's fine. It's just another X trillion dollars. Like, you know, I feel like that those are the conversations that could be had to your point, Eric, that, you know, MMT, you know, could, could very likely be, or some version of it, uh, a thing in, in the not so distant future. Um, uh, yeah, as it pertains to Bitcoin. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Taylor. You go. I was going to sign MMT and I'll let you get into Bitcoin. It does feel like it. this kind of like pulled it like, I mean, it was already in the Overton window, but now it just feels like it's like squarely in the middle of the Overton window kind of now. Like it's just, it's it's easier to talk about in a way that it wasn't from just a political perspective or whatever. But it's, I heard an interesting anecdote. Someone uh, I think on Twitter was saying like uh, Trump was like very insistent on, he wanted his signature to be on all the checks that got mailed out to people, um, which mm-hmm. is like, twisted and like a pretty sad in a lot of ways, but like politically actually very smart, right? Like, you know, who you're sitting at home, your job's gone and you get this big check. Or no, not a big check, but any you get a $1,200 check that just says, you know, Donald Trump on it. Like, oh yeah, I love that guy, right? Like he sent me $1,200. Like what's not to like about this kind of, like the, the politics of it, like, yeah, like who doesn't like free money? Like, you know, it's, you, yeah, you definitely get votes. Like there's no way giving people free money doesn't get you votes. Totally. Couldn't agree more with that. What you what were you saying about Bitcoin, Gabe? Oh yeah, I, I just I, that that you know that it's held that it's held up relatively well uh, in the context, Eric. That that you know we we we've had a relatively volatile last three months. Um, Bitcoin's always volatile. Um, you know, goes from three thousand to thirteen thousand, and then back to six thousand, and you know, and it's, I think most Bitcoin uh, investors, traders, etc., know that. But the fact that it's it's um, that it's kind of holding up, and and I think the value proposition of it again, I don't think it's in the store of value stage of money yet. I think it's got a lot of characteristics that make it a good store of value over time, yada yada yada. But like, you know, we're not there yet. It's still right now a very speculative asset. It's you know, the, you know, arguably the tip of the spear of, of kind of risk assets, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the venture capital side of things, again, you know, again, for, for people like us who've studied it pretty closely, I, I, you know, I, I see the value proposition of it not being as speculative as the average Joe that, that looks at Bitcoin, like, whoa, this thing's crazy volatile, like, you know, to me, the volatility is um, the price of admission to, you know, an asset that, you know, could go up 10 20 50x uh over time um and is a scarce asset you know has the characteristics of a, of a strong store of value so i think you're starting to see some of those qualities you know slightly shine through you know throughout this you know but you know listen it, it did go down to whatever it was what did, i don't know where the low it went to it went to back to four thousand or whatever it was you know but there's some crazy you know, stuff going on in leverage and bitmax and all these other things but like you know, here we here we are back up at seven thousand again. The point is, is it didn't go down to ten bucks, which you know, you know, if it was if it was truly a piece of junk and you wanted liquidity, uh, it's easy to sell this thing down, and it, and it could have sold gotten sold down, and it didn't. So I think it speak it's it's it, it's another uh, uh, not chink in the arm, the opposite of it. You know, it just shows its strength. It's, it shows its I don't know anti fragility potential. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it, if, if anything, it makes it makes me more bullish on on Bitcoin. What do you guys think? Yeah, I was like, I was just like, I just pulled up the chart. Bitcoin is down three point eight percent year to date, and the S and P is down like what ten or twelve percent. So it's like, you know, year to date is like held its value better than 
uh, yes, like, I, I just, if you'd asked me, you know, if you'd ask, like, imagine the S&P is down 20%, like, how much is Bitcoin down? I would have guessed, like, 40, 50, 60 or something, you know, like, some multiple uh, of that. So, yeah, like, I guess considering that does seem, and I, I know, I have talked to you, I don't know what your sense on this, Gabe, is, I know we've talked about it before, like, but it, the part of the question is, like, to what extent, you know, I guess part of what we saw in March was, like, uh, a liquidity crisis, like, like gold, bonds, stock, like everything was getting sold for cash. Like people just needed uh, cash. And so like the question is like, to what extent do, you know, do the holders of Bitcoin hold sort of other assets where like in the liquidity crunch, they would have to sort of like indiscriminately sell their Bitcoin as much as anything else? Or is it like, you know, is it mostly a separate, is the investor base kind of like distinct from, you know, the investor base in most traditional asset classes such that you could have a liquidity crisis and, uh, credit markets or whatever, but but not see that in uh, in Bitcoin. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's probably impossible to actually get that um, precise data. Yeah, I think it's I think it's I think it's hard to know too. But I think you know anecdotally, right? You know, we we, we talk we've been talking about for how long? As as if people have been talking about the institutions are coming, the herds coming. You know, they're coming, they're coming, and they don't come. And, and you know, a lot of these institutions, if you think about it, I mean, I think it's more than it was a year ago and two years ago, of course, but you know, we're still, most people don't own this asset. Most institutions don't own this asset. Most institutions can't even trade this asset. Uh, so to that end, uh, yeah, it's got a lot of retail support. So you could say, yeah, yeah. If, if, if the economy goes, goes bad um, and people need to, to put food on the table, of course they're going to sell Bitcoin, uh, just like they're going to sell gold. They're going to sell anything they'll make, you know, that's liquid. Um, but I think, I think this, this probably has a stronger holder base overall. Um, you know, retail wise than, than, than stock market investors. Um, institutionally, though, I don't know if you have that issue where you're saying uh, where, where a bunch of institutions are forced to sell stuff. And so they're going to have to force, they're going to force sell Bitcoin. Again, they don't own it to sell it yet. So perhaps that's what we're seeing too. Um, but I'm sure they'll, they'll come in when it's much higher. I want to go to the uh, back to the stock, stock market for a second. I heard this one theory that. Um, Maybe the stock the S and P isn't hit as much uh, now as opposed to two thousand after two thousand eight because because of QE and because of low interest rates. Maybe S and P is sort of the the safe, the new savings account. I people don't don't want to put their, their money in in, in, in banks will get low interest rates or even inflated away. Uh, and maybe maybe the S and P is the, the safest thing uh, out of relative to the other options. What, what do you think about that that theory? Uh, and then I'm also curious just to get your just your understanding of what is the, the uh, impact or the sort of ratio between uh, retail and institutional decision-making as it relates to the, the stock market generally? Is it mostly an institutional phenomenon? I use it mostly a reflection of what institutions are thinking or a reflection of what you know, retail investors are, are thinking and doing. Yeah, the first one, I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard that about the, the, the you, know, re, you know, people using the stock market as a savings account. Super aggressive to, to think in that format. You know, I, I I don't know. Maybe you got like the the Robin Hood kind of effect or something like that, where younger people are doing that or something, perhaps. And with the market kind of, you know, again, as the millennials or whatever the generation you want to call it, you know, over the last ten years, you know, yeah, this thing can't go down. It doesn't go down. Look what happens. I can just put it in the stock market, and it's like a savings account. And if that reflexive kind of attitude uh, prevailed, then I guess it's possible that that could be the case. I mean, I. <laughs> That's kind of scary to think about, just given just there is risk in markets. I think this shows this shows you know the last three months has showed us that 
been a big wake up call for the kind of buy the dip folks, perhaps, especially the levered ones. At the same time, yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting paradigm to think about. I, I, you know, I don't know anyone who thinks about the stock market as a savings account, but it, yeah, I guess it wouldn't, it wouldn't be shocking to, to, to think that, that, that many people would think that given kind of the relatively low volatility we've experienced in the past. Like, and I, yeah, I guess I think about it too in terms of like uh, the whole sort of like passive investing bogleheads phenomena. And I was looking, there's, I was looking at some data, like the, the 401k flows into like Vanguard in March were like unaffected. So it was like, as you know, the, the selling wasn't coming from like retail investors in their 401ks panicking uh, and like selling their index funds at, at Vanguard. It's just like, you know, I, I deposit X percent of my paycheck every month into my Vanguard account and buy the S and P 400 index fund or whatever it is. And like th- those flows are like, are, have been relatively unchained, but I, I, I guess I worry about, it. I think about it in terms of like, um, that if you look like the period basically from like 1984 to present in terms of like equity prices is like base you know U.S. equity prices 1984 to you know, February 2019 is like basically the you know, to my knowledge you know basically the best run of equities in any country in any history uh, you know of all of history forever and so there is kind of this like almost it seems like this mythology built up around like that's you know equities you know go up forever and everyone can just save their money in equities because like maybe it'll go down but it'll be back in like two years and like you know you have there are a number of you know 20 year periods you have the, the dow jones index was flat from like 1963 to 1983 right and how many people that save money in their retirement account are like prepared that like a, a possible situation is like that account will not not increase or will not give you know it, it will be at that value or lower you know, for the next uh, two decades. Like my sense is like very few people that are that are doing that, like think about it in those terms. Like the idea of like, a, you know, like you almost can't say bad things about like passive investing. Uh, like it, it's such like a moral good uh, in some ways, which, hmm. which I, inclines me to think like, you know, that there are like bubble aspects. Like just the fact that you can't talk about maybe this isn't a good idea, uh, like makes me quite nervous. Like the fact that it's almost like, yeah, again, out of the Overton window to even say like, yeah, maybe like sticking all your money in an S&P index fund and like assuming it's going to go up 7% a year every year or whatever uh, is like not an appropriate way to think about saving for retirement or saving for your kid's college or or whatever it is. Well, yeah. Well, it's interesting on that note. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think recency bias is a huge thing. And I think that we're, we're, we're talking about, the, you, you just talked about 30 years. I was talking about over 10 years. Yeah, I think you know what you know recency bias can play a lot into uh, people's thinking um including myself um but yeah with regards to the 401k stuff i mean you know i think mike green or i think he talked about it where it was like you know there's no outflows it's just inflows into your 401k from your paychecks that then go again go by oftentimes uh etfs and and other passive instruments you know yes at some point there's going to be outflows via you know, baby boomers, uh, older people that are starting to take distributions, um, hopefully not young people, because then they're going to have to pay fees and, 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 and penalties. But but yeah, like it's not surprising the data, I guess, is my point is that flows in from 401ks are, are generally speaking, just in, you know, they're, they're going into the market, they're going into these assets, because, you know, people are on auto pay or on auto, whatever withdrawal from their own uh, paycheck that then gets that then flows in there. So you know, again, that's, that's, that's part of the whole kind of 
speculative you know, potential of uh, you know, passive investing bubble because they're indiscriminately uh, buying and indiscriminately allocating uh, to these things regardless of where they are in price. I mean, which again, you could say, well, that's like dollar cost averaging or something like that. And there's merit in that too. But yeah. And that's I'm a question you, too, like how much of the, the growth in equities is like just demographics. Like, as you said, like the, the flows are all in. So like I, in practice, like these, like if you're, you know, Vanguard is not just, like it's just a constant bid, right? Like if people every month take money out of their paycheck and put it in Vanguard and buy the S&P index, like that's a bid in the market to buy every stock in the S&P index that, that has to happen. And so like at some point, those flows like probably reverse, right? Like the baby boomers retire and the money starts coming out. So yeah, I, I've heard Mike Green is who I've heard talk about that the um, the most as well. Like and that, you know, it was yeah, in sort of Q4 2018, we saw that volatility, uh, you know, December 24th and December 26th, the market was down, uh, the Dow Jones was down a thousand points from the 24th and not a thousand percent to the 26th or something like that. But the that interesting data point there was those were the, first the only two days or the first two days in history where every stock in the index had gone up or down on the same day so you typically like you you might have the index overall be down but like i guess that was interesting is like to what it's like that suggested like a lot of that is like passive flows right like maybe that and you have have to take distributions you know is after 70 70 and a half years old you have to take certain distributions there was like like you said was that just all these baby boomers like that was the first wave of uh them having to like you know sell their whatever's in their 401ks or iras um to take whatever the minimum required distribution is and like that, that I don't, we look at the demographic curve and i can't remember exactly where that peaks but it's like late 2020 you know, the baby boomers peak in like 2028 or 2030 or something like that Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I don't. Yeah, I haven't dug into the, the details on that one, but but yet yeah, to, to circle back to your other question, Eric, about you know who drives the market prices, or you know, is it institution, is it retail, is it whatever? I guess I would add another player, and I you know this actually flows into all you know circles back to all a lot of what we're talking about is the the, the, the biggest player in the markets the last ten years has been companies. So you know, there's all this fear over you know, company buybacks and buybacks and, you know, companies are buying all this stock and, you know, Delta Airlines, how could they do that? You know, all that stuff. Um, but, you know, the company buybacks have been the biggest driver of, of prices and, the, you know, the big biggest buyer in the market by an order of magnitude. And, um, you know, that is another scenario and another situation that's worth monitoring here because now you're getting companies that are, you know, needing bailouts and, you know, you know, the Delta Airlines, again, is this quintessential example. It's easy to pick on them because they, you know, bought back whatever X million, X billions of dollars in stock over the past 10 years. Now they're asking for like that much exactly in bailout funds. And it's just like cruel irony. But like, you know, you know, what what happens to buybacks when those what happens to the market when there's no corporate bid or very little corporate buyback bid um, under uh, in place? That was, again, the major fuel, along with what Taylor's talking about, this kind of auto buying from, from, from passive stuff. But, you know, these company buybacks have been hugely uh, inflow to, to, to equities. So, you know, what happens with regulation around that going forward? So that's worth monitoring. What happens if, you know, they start to, they, they ban buybacks because, you know, we can't, we can't just, you know, uh, because, they're, because, they, because they can. Because, listen, you guys are taking bailouts from us. You can't buy back stock. Well, now it's super unfair to the company. 
that didn't take a bailout uh, because, or if a company didn't take a bailout, they could still buy back stock. But is that fair too? You know that you know. So maybe they just ban stock buybacks altogether. Again, I'm making that up, but I'm just saying that like, you know, what happens with those? Right now, there's going to be stigmas attached to buybacks because of like, look what happened last time, and like, you know, you bought back stock, and now you're, you know, now this is what happened. This can happen, you know. Um, and what does that look like? And then, and moreover, I think we're going to start to see the opposite of buybacks. I think we're going to start to see uh, secondary equity offerings, which again, you know, is is a, is a point for the bears to make. That um, you know, we're, we're, you know, not only is the the buyback bid gone, the buyback supply is there now. So, or excuse me, the 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 corporate uh, supply, uh, stock supply is there. So, you know, they're going to be doing secondary offerings. Uh, in, or, in order to raise capital um, because of what, what they're dealing with right now. And so, you know, that's a whole nother dynamic that I think is going to be super interesting given the, how important stock buybacks were, um, you know, to companies, to markets, um, and, and the influence they had on prices, Eric. So I think to your, to your question before, I think the stocks, uh, that, that's the biggest thing I'm watching, whether the institutions and the retail, you know, that, that's that's important, I think, on the margin. I think, you know, like I said before, cash, you know, big, big, extreme, uh, you know, cash balances, high cash balances on, on the retail side is generally a contrarian indicator. And you generally want to be buying stocks when high cash levels on the retail side get super extreme and vice versa when they get super when the high cash level or when cash levels get super low for for retail, you know that can maybe make you uh, a little more cautious. Um, but again, I think the bigger factor is you know what happens on the corporate on the corporate side of things um, because I, and I don't think that's talked about enough. Um, just because we, we haven't really seen any any stock offerings yet, we've seen some and we've seen a lot of bond offerings, but you know we have not seen price discovery yet via the equity market. And again, I think that just could be it a headwind uh, going forward, um, especially as prices bounce back, you know, now companies are like, oh, shoot, maybe I should, maybe I should sell some stock here to kind of shore things up a little bit, keep, keep get the cash reserves higher or, or, you know, and, you know, or, or hire more people or invest in growth projects, whatever it is. But, um, you know, I think that's something we're going to, we're going to have to watch. And, and what's the best way to make sense of, 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 sort of the stigma as it relates to, to buyback, like what, what's your opinion on it? We all, or, or just bailouts in general to, I mean, had Chamath sort of go viral the other week for, for saying that we shouldn't uh, bail out the, the airlines. And he also sort of explained that it wouldn't hurt employees as much as we, as we, as we think it would, and that it would hurt the sort of investors slash speculators. What, what do you, how do you, how do you make sense of this? Or, and what's your opinion? I mean, I, 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 I think, you know his his opinion is 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 aggressive and 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 I think that that lack nuance you know to say that it doesn't hurt employees because you know again I'm not a bankruptcy expert whatsoever I'm sure he knows a lot more than me he can quote the friggin' rules and all that stuff but like the point is that you know yes I, I agree on some level I am like just let it fail let you know this is this is this is ca- this is capital markets this is markets markets don't always go up people don't always make money you underwrote the risk you took the risk. You know, you, you now you have to take the pain because you, you know, you made a bad investment. And so, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. Family Office, rich guy, you know, you, you lose. Um, and, and, you know, but, you know, and then he's saying that, well, because in, even in bankruptcy, there's, there, they, there's a process, they get uh, their, pre, their packages and, you know, they keep, you know, X amount of the employees, but it's still not simple. You know, a lot of those guys have, have, you know, a lot of employees do, do own, own stock. So it hurts them. And, 
And, you know, lots of employees lose their jobs uh, as well and take pay cuts and, and this restructures. And so I, I, I don't know the exact right answer. You know, the, the part of me is like, you know, totally on the same page. Like, yeah, you know, this is this is just the natural kind of process of of of, of uh, capitalism. And, you know, there's, there's winners, there's losers, there's risk, uh, there's reward. Uh, and this is a time when, you know, people can lose and let the people lose. Don't just bail them out. Um and, uh, you know, at the, at the same time, I don't think it's so simple to say that let them all lose, let the stocks all go to zero, and it's not going to have any effect on the employees because there, there's some process and some package that allows them to kind of stay in place because I don't think that's how it goes most of the time. I think there's a lot of pain taken by employees in those situations as well. And so we saw like some of this in 2008, Gabe, you correct me if I'm wrong, like, like, part of the problem in 2008 was like you had to get the banks to agree to take the bailouts. Like if the deal for the bailout is like, we keep all the employees, but like we wipe all the equity shareholders, like the management that owns a bunch of equity might as well just like run the company into the ground at that point. Because like, you know, why, why would they take the bailout that like wipes out, you know, 95% of their net worth or like whatever they have tied up in the company. So I get, I don't know that. Like, and I, again, I don't, I, I am not, I don't know anything about bankruptcy law effectively, but like, yeah, you do have, my understanding is chapter 11 bankruptcy, like you, you do have significant impact on the employees, but like finding a way to do it that like, you know, that I guess morally, that seems like, you know, the, uh, maybe the, with the shelling point or like what people are thinking like, oh, okay, equity holders took risk and they got buybacks and like now they should lose their money. But like logistically, like even, I, I don't know if that's even the right approach, but let, let's say it is like, how do you, how do you like actually make that happen? It's like, not, I don't, yeah, that seems like a really sticky problem. No, it is. And it is. I mean, you, you brought up a good word moral and there's just, you know, so much of this stuff is just, you know, moral hazard 101 across the board incentives, incentives not being aligned uh, or, you know, even the buybacks is a perfect example of that where management's compensation is, is literally based on the stock price in a lot of cases. So why, you know, they're incentivized to be buying back stock versus, you know, doing new projects versus uh, hiring employees versus, you know, growth capital, et cetera. You know, let's buy back shares and get the, get the stock price higher. And, you know, and, 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 you know, that's, you know, huge moral hazard. And then you brought up one just now, like just, you know, in, in a bankruptcy process and a, you know, discussion, like you said, for a bailout, like, you know, how is management going to act? Is there, are they really acting in the best interest of not themselves, you know, and it's, 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 it's tricky, man. It's, it's all, you know, incentives are, are powerful. What have we not spoken about here that you think is important that people know if they want to understand what's happening in the, in, in markets right now or, or important to think about uh, moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing, you know, I think I kind of talked about it before is just kind of thinking about the, you know, what are the behavioral change? I know there's like tweet storms and such about this, but like, you know, what are the behavioral, like long-term behavioral changes? Like I, I'm kind of in the opinion that like, most people are going to have short, have short memories. And if this thing is just, you know, ends up not being the biggest deal in the world in short term, people are going to kind of go back about their business as they once were for the most part. But I, I, A, it could be, it could last much longer. It could be more longstanding, yada, yada, yada. And B, I could be wrong. And, you know, there could be some serious paradigm shifts, some serious behavioral changes that, that come from this. And I guess that's something I, I don't, know the answer to, but it's something I'm super curious and I'm going to be studying very closely going forward is just like, you know, how are people living in the world uh, differently or, or similarly than they were kind of before, before all this stuff. And, and then what are the effects of that, both economically, socially, I guess, politically as well, because, you know, they're all, they're all intertwined in this day and age. But 
that's something that I'm that I'm going to be watching pretty closely. Is the Fed buying junk bonds significant? Are it's it, it, it significant? I mean, they're they're again according to their program, they are buying their their primary objective is to buy in investment grade, and then I think with the rest of the proceeds, they're going to be buying or you know they're allocating X amount. I mean, it's all vague, I think, but they're going to be buying uh, mostly investment grade, and then with the remainder, they're going to be buying uh, junk ETFs, probably bonds too directly. Um, I do think it's significant. I think it's as, as significant. Well, there's a couple things. Uh, it's significant from a signaling perspective because, again, similar to backstopping, you know, this market and that market and this market and that market, it it it, it provides a signal to the market that we're here. So perhaps other market participants, you know, come in and and support it, you know, and so it's not just the Fed standing there with their hands buying all their bags getting fat because everyone's selling to them. Hopefully that's not what happens. But you know, it sounds like even if it does, their bags are pretty big. To uh, they have a pretty big bid, um, so I think it's significant uh, from that perspective. I think you know, again, we talk about moral hazard. There's there's an argument to be made that it's you know reinforcing bad behavior um, in the sense that these are these are these are highly levered, highly speculative, highly risky industries with you know arguably bad uh, bad businesses, uh, bad capital structures. You know, I don't I don't bad management maybe I don't know, but like not great you know, companies are high, high yield, high risk companies, you know, that may or may not deserve to be in business, you know, regardless without subsidies. So, you know, why support these kind of, I don't know, zombies in extreme words, but why support zombie companies, uh, you know, that, that, that really are kind of uneconomic that have poor unit economics that have poor, you know, uh, operating leverage that, that, that literally have, you know, uh, sub, you know, 5% return on invested capital, you know, these things, you know, why, why support these things when, you know, you can give, you can forgive student loans. You could, you could give more money to Joe main street, uh, you know, et cetera. So not to go off on too much of a tangent, but yeah, when they start buying the junk of the junk of the junk, it's just like, you know, we can't let anyone, we can't let anything fail ever. You know, is it, is it really, is this is everything, you know, even the most, you know, poorly run, uh, highly speculative things need to be saved. Uh, you know, that's, that's the question. So I think, I think it's, 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 it's questionable. Um, but you know, it's, it's a bit of a cynical take there. It, it, it said that, um, throughout all these, uh, all our crises, the fed sort of improves over time. It, it learns, it tinkers it, and, and we get smarter. Do you, do you feel like, and the one critique of 2008 was we didn't act you know, quick enough, fast enough. Do you think that's, um, but both, I guess, monetary policy and fiscal policy. Do, do you think that's that's happening here? Like, should we be happy with with the way that we're we're handling this? The Fed of the Treasury. I would say, I would say, as as it sits right now, I think they, you know, again, they had a bit of a playbook. I agree with exactly what you just said. All these acronyms we just talked about, you know, the CPFF, the the, the PDCF, all the whatever, all the the alphabet soup of of facilities. That are that are in place right now. You know, a lot of them, TALF, et cetera, came from the the last crisis, and 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 Bernanke, you know, those guys, they set, they set these things up, so they had a bit of a playbook. They've added some other stuff, obviously, uh, some other programs. I think, like you said, they've iterated and and learned. So I I think as of now, they're they're where where it stands right now, they're um, they're doing a good job, you know in so much that you believe that they can actually control things, you know, again, that's this whole infallible fed 
thesis that, you know, they can just control things. They are in control. They're really in control. And, you know, you know, all, all it takes is to look back and, and watch uh, Bernanke talk about how we think subprime is contained, you know, six months before everything unwound crazy. And, you know, Jay Powell, I'm sure we could find some quotes of his saying, yeah, we think things are great right now. And then, you know, three months later, here we are. So I, I, you know, again, that's, that's tongue in cheek, but I think, you know, there, there is a lot, um, that they're doing. And I think they are really backing up the truck and throw, you know, doing what they can here. The question is, is it, is it going to be enough? Um, and, and, and again, as I was saying before, is, you know, some markets are saying, no, some markets are saying, you know, the, the, the commercial paper markets, maybe the Euro dollar markets, um, uh, the, the, you know, even the treasury markets, you know, the, the spreads are pretty wide right now in terms of the markets for the bonds. So, you know, certain markets are not, are not saying it's enough. They're not, you know, kind of coming, coming correct and, and, and kind of reverting as maybe they should given the bazooka that's being thrown. So that's the kind of tricky thing is that even though there's so much being thrown and I think that they're doing a good job, I, you know, I still think there's going to be more on the come. Um, I, I don't know exactly the path, how that looks, but I think, um, I think that, and I think that they know that they need to continue to come correct, and they're going to need to uh, re-up the the the, the PPP. Uh, well, it's not it's not the Fed really; it's, it's Congress. Congress knows they're going to have to re-up that, but like, you know, it, it, it's it's. I think I would give them a, a a B plus A minus at this point. But again, I don't know if they're in if they're in full control. There's a chance that things get out of their their hands, you know, and they can throw everything they want. You can go MMT on that ass across the board. And, you know, markets are still markets and people still need to sell and they need to sell and they're going to sell it down because they're going to do that. And they're going to cause this to SPVs, like you're saying, Taylor, to, to, to need to request more money. If they can't get more money, then those things go bankrupt. And, you know, that's not a 0% chance either. So, you know, I think the Fed is willing to do what they can or, 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 or think that they are or, or willing to do what they think is good enough. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, but at some point we all might be shown like, look, it doesn't matter what the Fed thinks that they're doing. And as much shit as they want to throw against the wall, it's not enough or it's not the right shit or whatever, but it's, it's excuse my language, but it's, uh, you know, it just might be, it might not be enough. And so, yeah, that's my, that's my take. Taylor, do you have any strong view on the Fed? No, I think you said it all. Yeah. I think that's, I, I think that's a perfect place to wrap. We'll have to have both of you come back in a, in around a year or so, it'd be fascinating to see, you know, was this sort of a short-term uh, demand shock? Uh, you know, what, what's, what's going to happen with inflation, with, with uh, the pensions, with, um, you know, w- will the Fed go MMT on, on, on all our asses? <laughs> It'll be uh, fascinating <laughs> how this all plays out. Uh, it sure will be, man. Eric. Yeah, with that in mind, thank you both for, for coming to the podcast. This has, been a, this has been a great episode. Thanks a ton, Eric. Appreciate it. Thanks, Taylor. you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.